Hi, I'm Maggie Civet. A few months ago, Curious City answered a question about why there are no federal Native American reservations in Illinois. After all, there are dozens and dozens of rivers, towns, and streets named for indigenous people. And the state itself is named for the Illinois, a confederation of tribes that lived across the area. It's a painful but fascinating history. President Andrew Jackson's policy was, you know, Indian removal. And they wanted to get as many Indians out of there and remove them as far away as they could. And when the original inhabitants of the Chicago area were killed or forced out, settlers often plowed over their homes and lands, destroying their artifacts in the process. I really feel like, like Native Americans are just completely missing from our understanding of the region. That's listener Judy Pollack, who notes how important Native Americans were in making Chicago what it was. And that got her wondering about the sacred ceremonial sites known as effigy mounds that are associated with Native people. These are large earthworks made from soil, usually about three to seven feet high, that form shapes that can be seen from overhead. This week, we revisit a story where producer Jesse Dukes finds out if there ever was one of these effigy mounds here in Chicago and how they were created. People used to say that uh, the Phoenicians must have built them or, you know, people from Mars must have come down and built them. That's coming up. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Like a lot of Chicagoans, I like to go to Wisconsin, especially to go hiking, climbing, and camping. And I recently learned Wisconsin has thousands of ancient earthworks built by Native Americans. They're called effigy mounds, and they're made from soil sculpted into three to six foot high shapes. They're shaped like eagles, bears, and things that look like turtles or lizards. Uh, They can be a hundred to a couple hundred feet long. Wow. Uh, Effigies are monuments, and they're they're monumental construction. This is Amy Rosebro, an archaeologist who specializes in effigy mounds. She says the shapes in the landscape sometimes appear to tell a story. They use the terrain in order to appear as if they're moving or if, if they're alive. There's a great amount of artistic skill that goes into the final shaping of an effigy mound. Artistic skill. Here's what she means. Native Americans made the mounds a thousand years ago, and the shapes were consistent across hundreds of miles. They built them without surveying tools, GPS, computers, or the bulldozers we would use today. And the builders could not see the shapes they were building. You need a bird's eye view for that. Anyway, for a Chicagoan, the effigy mounds are something you'd associate with a place you'd visit, more a Wisconsin or Iowa thing, but not a Chicago thing. Or are they? Curious City fan Judy Pollack got me wondering. She noticed an odd detail on a map of Chicago from before it was a city. It's a map of um, Indian settlements, and it had Indian trails, it had little Indian villages, lookouts, you know, so a variety of different features related to uh, the Native Americans here. The map was made in 1901 by a man named Albert Scharf but it was based on records and recollections of Chicago's earliest white settlers. And then there was this one word kind of over towards the lake that was lizard. The map actually has a little lizard sketch and a label, 
lizard effigy mound. You see where I'm going with this? It's not clear exactly where, since today's streets aren't included in the map, but the map suggests there is or was an effigy mound in Lakeview, a little north of downtown. So, Judy wants to know if Chicago had its own effigy mound. And if so, is anything left of it? Now, Chicago was farther southeast than any known effigy mounds, so finding one here would be a big deal. It would suggest Chicago had some connection to a mound-building culture previously thought to have lived hundreds of miles away. For an answer to Judy's question, I reached out to local historians and archaeologists, all of whom said the only real evidence about the mound was the map Judy saw with the lizard label. It's really just a clue. And I learned that if there had been an effigy mound in Chicago, its chances of surviving the early days of white settlement was not great. During that period, uh, the mounds did not fare well. That's archaeologist Amy Roseborough again. We're estimating losses of 80% or more. Wow. It was just a matter of indifference for the most part. Mm. Uh, this is a period when Native American groups are being removed from the area, and there was this concept that the land is now in our hands, and we are going to either not bother with these remnants of the past or purposefully erase them. Well, that doesn't sound promising. But I did learn that Albert Scharf, the man who made the map, probably got the location of the Lizard Mound from his friend, Carl Dilg. Dilg was an amateur archaeologist active around Chicago in the late 1800s. His papers are at the Chicago History Museum. Folder. This one says mounds. That's me at the History Museum, whispering because it's a quiet reading room. I'm looking for a description or a location Judy and I can check out to see if there's any trace of it. And looking at Dilg's papers from the 1880s and 90s, get this. He writes about the lizard effigy in the present tense, like it's a local landmark. It's two blocks north of Wolfram. I find a sketch Dilg made of the profile of the lizard effigy mound, sketches of artifacts found near the mound, and finally, a more detailed map of Lakeview showing the, quote, lizard effigy's exact location. Oh my goodness, I found it. North of Oakdale. Oh, wow. Dilg's Lakeview map includes a sketch of a lizard on a specific block, north of Oakdale, east of Sheffield. But then I find papers from another archaeologist, a respected professional archaeologist from Wisconsin, Charles Brown. He visited Chicago in 1910, and he writes, quote, A lizard mound was located on Oakdale Avenue and Wellington Street under the present elevated station. Note the past tense, was located. So, one archaeologist describes the mound in the present tense in the 1890s, another in the past tense in 1910. They both place it in the exact same spot in Lakeview. And here's another piece of the puzzle. In 1896, an elevated train line, now the Brown Line, was built right through the spot both archaeologists say there was a mound. So to me, these data points suggest A, there was some kind of mound in Lakeview, shaped something like a lizard, and B, in the 1890s, the construction of the L train destroyed it. I met Judy, our question asker in Lakeview, to show her Dilg's map with the mound location. Oh, look! There it is! A map! You can walk right under the L tracks where the map suggests the lizard would have been. Don't see any elevation, do you? No. It's a parking lot now, and there's no sign of any mound. It's sad. Yeah, uh, yeah it's really sad. <laughs> 
It makes me go back to think about who was it that did this and, you know, what were they thinking at the time? And is there any record of it or is it just gone without a trace? Now, I should say, I never found rock-solid evidence that the mound Dilg talks about in Lakeview was really an ancient effigy mound. Could have been a trash pile or a sandbar. But there's good circumstantial evidence it was an effigy. Enough that it's worth discussing Judy's follow-up question. If there were an effigy mound in Chicago, who built it in the first place? One thing to check is whether the mound as described is related to the other effigy mounds in Wisconsin. So I described the sketch to archaeologist Amy Rosebro. Does that shape that I'm describing as drawn on the map sound familiar to you? Yes. Uh, there's similar mounds of throughout a good portion of southeastern Wisconsin. Hmm. And they are associated with uh, a being uh, called the underwater panther or water spirit, uh, known from uh, a good number of tribes living in the area. The Ho-Chunk and Potawatomi both have stories about water spirits. So Rosebro thinks it's possible that the mound in Lakeview was the same kind found in Wisconsin. And the fact that it's hundreds of miles from the Wisconsin mounds might actually reveal something about the builders. For the longest time, people thought of the effigy builders as this single unified culture, that you've got one group of people who are all doing the same thing at the same time. Mm. And what we're finding in what these isolated or kind of far-flung effigies are telling us is that it was more of a ceremony, it was an idea, and that you could adopt it wholeheartedly, as many people in Wisconsin seem to, or you could build one effigy mound in your community's lifetime. Rosebro believes the mounds were constructed cooperatively over weeks as part of burial ceremonies for important people. And the mound building is only going to be one part of what's going on. There would have been ceremony occurring, uh, funeral ritual, feasting, speeches, dancing. As far as the question of who built the mounds in Wisconsin or Chicago, well, that's been a contentious subject for at least 200 years. And the different ways in which people have answered that question often says more about them than the actual answer to the question. You see, in the late 1800s, when Native Americans were no longer seen as a threat to westward expansion, white Americans got interested in the mounds. Although when you consider that many were burial sites, that interest was not always respectful. There was a tradition called going mounding. Mm. So if you could take a family out on a picnic, you'd hand a shovel to a couple of kids, and then they would dig into a mound to see what was there. Like human remains. Early archaeologists referred to the, quote, mound builders with a capital M and B, as if they were a separate race. Many people were convinced groups like the Ho-Chunk, Potawatomi, or Ojibwe, who lived in the areas with effigy mounds, were not sophisticated enough to build them. People used to say that... uh the Phoenicians must have built them, or, you know, people from Mars must have come down and built them. This is John Lau, a Potawatomi Indian and professor of American Indian Studies at Ohio State. He thinks American settlers might have even ignored Indians who did have something to say about the mounds, because... Gosh, that sounds like the natives have more of a claim, and it sounds more icky to walk them out to Kansas and Oklahoma then. In the 20th century, archaeologists finally started asking regional tribes about the mounds. It turns out the Ho-Chunk in Wisconsin claimed descent from the mound builders. From those conversations and more archaeological evidence, it's now widely accepted that ancestors of the Ho-Chunk, Iowa, and other regional tribes built the mounds. I reached out to the Ho-Chunk Nation, but they didn't call or write back. 
Over the years, they've described mounds as sacred places and expressed they prefer not to explain much more than that. Now, Chicago's Evigy Mound would have been in the territory of the Potawatomi in the 17 and 1800s. So what about them? John Lau says, as a Potawatomi, he didn't learn much about the mounds growing up. There is uh, an angst, I think, certainly within me as a Native person, is there's an angst that I don't know more about the mounds. The Potawatomi probably came to the region a couple hundred years after the mounds were built, and therefore weren't closely related to the mound-building people. But that doesn't mean the Potawatomi in Chicago wouldn't have respected an effigy mound there. I think they would have considered them as uh, uh, caretakers and custodians. You know, I think these effigy mounds were sacred sites that always would have been seen as uh, special places of reverence. But he says even today, in a supposedly more sensitive age, not everybody has that same respect for the mounds. He remembers a former student who grew up on a farm. Came up to me early in a semester and said, Now, some of his greatest memories growing up is him and his brothers and his dad out in the back 40 digging up Indian Mound and all the stuff they found. (laughs) And it was like, I didn't know how to respond, except that, uh, you know, we call that grave robbing. You know, other than that, it's nice that you had good times with your dad and your brothers. John Lau says as a Native American, he thinks if Chicago had a mound, it's really too bad it's not here anymore. And it's too bad that hundreds or more were destroyed by white settlers in our region. And that shouldn't just be a Native American view. I think we should all feel sad about when they're lost. Just like if, you know, the Acropolis was lost, right? You know, or the pyramids were lost, or Stonehenge was lost. These two are part of the human record of achievement and aspiration. Um, You know, it's just, uh, what a shame. Thanks to Jesse Dukes for that reporting. And don't go anywhere. We've got a special opportunity for you. And I'll tell you all about it right after this. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. I'm one of those lucky people that loves their job. Even if I didn't work here, I'd still listen to the show. I love learning more about the city and getting out and meeting people. Tabling in different neighborhoods is one of my favorite parts of what I do. Just setting up a table outside a library or in a park, meeting you and hearing your great questions. One of the things I like most about the process of answering those questions is how much time we spend making sure we get the story right and telling it in a way that's compelling and interesting. 
Our editing process includes lots of, what did you think about this? Or I didn't fully understand that part. Or I wish there was more of this here. It's honestly a lot of fun. You'd be really surprised to see just how much these episodes can change during edits. And right now we're giving you a chance to sit in on one of these edits. We're calling it the Curious City Backstage Pass. One lucky listener will join our team as we work on an upcoming episode. You'll hear a draft, talk about it with us, and help make it into the answer it needs to be. And all you have to do to get in on this drawing? Make a donation to WBEZ. Any donation, any amount. Give what you can, and you'll get your chance to win this very rare backstage pass. So make your gift and give yourself a chance to win at wbez.org slash Curious Decade. But you have to hurry. This won't be around for long. That's wbez.org slash Curious Decade. Additional research for this episode came from Catherine Nagasawa, Bashira Mack, and Robert Lorzell. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and produced by Jason Mark. Adriana Cardona Magigad is Curious City's reporter. Asia Singleton is our intern. Alexandra Solomon edits the show. I'm Maggie Civit. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.